Father, we just thank you for the season that we're in, the season of Easter and today's Palm Sunday. And Lord, there's, we all are familiar with the Easter story. We're all familiar with what Jesus did for us on the cross, Lord. But uh, the author of Hebrews takes us so much deeper than just a surface knowledge of, of uh, Easter Sunday, Lord. He takes us into the depths of what it means uh, for you to have sent your son to die for our sins and, and give us the perfection that we can have only in Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us through this book about the true meaning of Easter. Teach us, Lord, about the finality of the cross, Lord, about the total forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, because it's only when we trust fully in, in your work that uh, we're able to, to enter into your very presence and do the work that you've called us to do. So, Lord, we ask that you teach us these great truths and that you teach them by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, and we'll be in chapter number 4 today. Chapter number 4. If you looked at the uh, bulletin, uh, it's kind of a strange title there, Quit Work Now. And uh, so uh, I know a lot of you said amen to that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, you probably thought, what in the world am I advocating? I mean, Pastor, don't you know, you know, you read the bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. And I know there's a lot of us in that, in that condition. So I certainly wasn't uh, in the title uh, referring to your job uh, or your ministry, although uh, there's a lot of us that need to go to work in that area. But, but uh, what did I mean when I said quit work now? Uh, I'm talking about quitting any attempt that you make in order to improve your standing with God. If you're trying to do that, quit it right now. I mean, you can't save yourself, and you can't even sanctify yourself. Only Christ can do that. And until you rest in that work, you're not going to enter into the holiest of holies. And that's where the author of Hebrews is trying to take us. I mean, it's exactly what Paul meant in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, when he said, he, he basically said, quit work now. He says, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Now, if you reverse that statement that Paul's makes right there what he says if, if you keep trying to work out your own salvation if you try to, try to work out your own sanctification then you're not going to find that rest you're not going to you're not going to your faith is not going to be accounted to you for righteousness and you will not enter the rest of God and you will die in a spiritual wilderness there's that danger and that's the warning that he's been giving us here uh, at the end of chapter 3 and at the beginning of chapter Four. Remember last time he gave us that very scary, intense warning in our study. And remember he used the Jews as an example. How two million entered into the, to the, to the wilderness. They crossed the, the Red Sea and they were heading for the promised land. How many of them made it in? Two. Only two of them. Well, two and their children made it in, but that was it. The rest of them fell in the wilderness. Now, why did they fall in the wilderness? Why did they die in the wilderness? Was it because of their immorality? Was it because of their idolatry? Now, they certainly were immoral. They certainly hung on to their idols. 
Were they covetous? Yes, they were covetous. Did they fall because of their blasphemies or their covetousness? No. They didn't even fall because of their murmuring and complaining, although that was an indication of why they did fall. Why did they fall? Why did they fail to enter the promised land? Why did they die in the wilderness? Well, he gives us that answer in verse number 19. He says, so we see, verse chapter 3, verse 19, he says, so we see that they could not enter in because of one word. And what was that word? Because of their unbelief. And so now as we come to chapter 4, he's going to repeat that warning again. He's going to repeat it several times. I mean, when God warns us one time, that should be enough, shouldn't it? But if he warns us several times, i got to believe he's pretty serious about the warning, and he's certainly serious in this case. So let's go to chapter 4, and let's pick up in verse number 1. And, and remember now, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, I, I believe it's Paul, the author of Hebrews is speaking some 1,500 years after the Exodus. But listen to what he says in verse number 1. He says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. So there's still in, in the author's day, uh, back in the first century, there was still a promise that remained of entering his rest. And I could say the same thing about the century in which we live in, the 21st century there still remains a promise of entering his rest. And since there remains a promise, here's the warning, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. Now, last week, we kind of, and I'm not going to do it again today, we've done it several times, we, re, we, we went over the, uh, the history of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and heading for the promised land, and, uh, uh, but they didn't make it in. I mean, why did God want them in the promised land? It was a place of what? It was a place of rest. It was a place where they could enjoy the land and enjoy their God. And, and really, it was only, and what, what the author is saying here, there still remains a promise because that promised land really wasn't the great promise. I mean, that was only a type of the promise. There remains a much greater rest for us. The promise remains and, and for us to enter into his rest. Now, if there's a promise that remains to enter into his rest, what's the alternative of entering into his rest? What's the alternative? What happened to the Israelites? They died in the wilderness. And the alternative of you not entering the rest of God is that you will die in the wilderness. And so he repeats that warning here. He says, let us fear, lest any of you come short of the promised land, of the promised rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, man, that, that warning right there should scare us all half to death. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to be in the number that makes it into the promised land. I want to be in that number. I want to be one of the ones who finds the rest of God, this land of spiritual blessings and rest. Does, does God put a limit? on how many people can enter his rest? No. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, how many of them could have made it into the promised land if they had believed God? How many of them could have made it in? All two million of them could have made it in. And that's true now. There aren't any limits on how many people God wants to enter his rest. But let me tell you what does limit the people who enters his rest. 
our rebellious, prideful, hardened, unbelieving hearts. That's what keeps us from entering the rest of God. Man, you would think it'd be a real easy thing. I mean, how many of you want to rest? How many of you are tired of being weary and worn out in this world? Just a few of you? Yeah, let's be honest here. I mean, we all are tired of it. We want to rest. And it's just a simple choice. That's all it is. But man, I'll tell you, the odds aren't very good. The odds aren't very good at all of you entering his rest. If it's based upon odds, man, you're going to have a tough time making it in. How many Jews, how many Jews were there that, that had the opportunity to enter the rest of God? Two million. And I mean, Jesus said the same thing about all the people of this world. He said, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. He says, as in Matthew chapter 7, and, 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 and narrow is the, the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And remember I said last week, what's that word few in the Greek? It's our word micros. Someone reminded me after the church, it's very interesting that in mathematical terms, the word micros means one millionth. That's exactly how many Jews made it into the promised land. One million, two out of two million, if you want to do the math, that's one million. Micros made it in. And that's true today. There are going to be very few people that truly enter the rest of God. You know why? Because they want to add something to what Christ has done. Instead of taking the simple gospel and receiving the simple gospel, they want to add something to that. What's the one thing that keeps you out of the promised rest of God? What's the one word? Well, pride, you could almost add to that. What is it? Look at Hebrews 3.19. So we could see that they could not enter in because of one word, because of unbelief. You know what unbelief, really, unbelief is manifested in our pride, and it's manifested in our religion. You realize that unbelief, most of the religions of the world, you know what they manifest? They manifest unbelief. They, they, they manifest this unwillingness to totally trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our pride does the same thing. What does Paul say about the cross? It's an offense to most people. I mean, you mean to tell me that I'm so sorry that the only thing that can save me is God on the cross? Yeah, I mean to tell you that. I'm so sorry, I don't know about you, but that's how sorry I am. It took a cross, the God on a cross to save me, and that's what it takes to save you too. But, you know, we, we want to add something. That surely, you know, that's not enough. Surely we've got to do something to, 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 uh, to, to make it into heaven. I mean, there's got to be something else other than the cross, and that's what most religion says. Whenever you say, and, and, and when I hear somebody say this, let me tell you, they're in danger of dying in the wilderness. If you hear this said, what I'm about to say, these people who say this are, are leading a bunch of people into the pit. There are many ways that will get you into heaven. We have a lot of evangelical pastors saying that now, that there are other faiths that will get you into heaven. There is no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved but Jesus Christ. And not just his name, it's his work on the cross. And if you say there are other ways, are you resting in the cross? No, you're resting in other things. And there's no other way that we can be saved except the cross of Jesus Christ. And, it's our, and religion is just full of pride. 
I mean, there are so many prideful people, pride, pride over those silliest things. I had somebody call me this week and, and ask me what version of the Bible we used, and I said, the New King James Version, and they said, goodbye, click. Well, you know what? I know. I can tell you exactly why they did that, because they are King Jamers. Uh, I don't know if you know what a King Jamer is, but a King Jamer believes that if you don't use the King James Version of the Bible, you're a heretic, and you're going to hell. Okay, what is that? What is that? That is pride. Do you understand what you're saying when you're saying that? You're saying that I'm better than you because I use the King James. I'm more righteous than you because I use the King James version of the Bible. Now, what are you doing when you say that? You're saying that, that the King James version of the Bible somehow makes you more righteous. You're adding to the work of Jesus Christ, and that's nothing but pride. You can use, Look, if you use the new King James version of the Bible, the King James version of the Bible... Because I use the New King James Version of the Bible doesn't make me any more righteous than the person who uses the King James Version of the Bible. Look, you can even use the nearly inspired version, the NIV, and be saved. The ASV, whatever version you choose to use. Now, I personally recommend the New King James Version of the Bible. And I would challenge you as I would challenge that person Get your Greek New Testament out, and I'll get mine out, and I will get an interlinear, and I'll show you where, you where this Bible follows the Greek New Testament. I love the King James Version of the Bible. But I don't, you know, and I love the New King James Version of the Bible. But I don't take pride in the fact that I use the New King James Version of the Bible. That doesn't add, does that add one speck of righteousness to what Christ has done for me on the cross? Does the fact I worship God on Saturday instead of Sunday, does that make me better than other people? No. The fact that I've been baptized and you haven't, does that make me better than anybody else? I've been baptized with, I've been sprinkled and you've been dunked, does that make you better than me because you've been dunked? No. And whenever we take those religious activities and we try to, to make them something that adds righteousness to the work of Jesus Christ, we're not resting in the work of the cross. And we're in danger of dying in a wilderness. We're in serious danger of dying in a wilderness. And so we're to quit, we're, we need to quit work now. We need to quit trusting in our religion and trusting in uh, ourselves to save ourselves or make ourselves better. We cannot do it. Now, does that mean you don't work does that mean you don't work? You quit work as far as your sanctification and your salvation and your glorification are concerned, but it doesn't mean you quit work. We were looking at that passage, in, a great passage in Colossians uh, Wednesday night where Paul says he reveals that great mystery. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, you know that mystery. What's the mystery that's been hidden from the ages that now has been revealed? Christ in you your hope of glory. Paul said, that's it. That's all you've got to know. Christ in you, your hope of glory. Quit work now. Your, your only hope of being made a better person, your only hope of being saved, your only hope of going to heaven is Christ in you, your hope of glory. But you know what? You look in Colossians and you read the very next verse and you know what Paul says? He, say, he begins, he says, I preach him. 
I preach him and him only. And then you know what he says? This is amazing. He says, I warn every man. I warn every man. I teach every man. I desire to make every man perfect in Christ. In other words, what Paul's saying there, I quit working as far as my salvation goes because as a Jew, that's all he did was try to work out his salvation. That's all he did was try to do it through works is what I'm trying to say. And then when he realized that it was Christ in you, your hope of glory, he quit working as far as his salvation went. But then he went to work as far as the gospel goes. Can you imagine that calling that you warned every man? He warned every man. Every person he ran across, he warned. Every person he ran across, he taught them about Jesus Christ. Every person he ran across, he tried to lead them into the perfection that we have in Jesus Christ. Man, that's a high calling. Is, is, it, is that calling any different for us? No, not at all. And so let's go to the next verse, verses 2 and 3. He says, for indeed, if the gospel was preached to us, oh, man, we're, we're, we're heading into some deep water here. This is a startling statement he's making right here. I don't know if you noticed it or not. Listen to what he said. For if the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, Who's the them? The two million Jews in the Exodus. Did you know they heard the gospel? They heard the gospel. People say, how did the Jews get saved? Same way you and I did, they heard the gospel. I know y'all are looking at me strange. I'm going to have to explain that probably if I can. He says, therefore, he says, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard, the gospel which they heard, you could say, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith to those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said. Now, here's that warning again. It's the, it's the second or third time we get that warning. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They wouldn't hear the gospel that was preached to them, they tried to add to that gospel. Their pride and their religion kept them from, from hearing the gospel. And so I swore in my wrath that they wouldn't enter my rest. Now watch this. You want another startling statement? Although the works of the gospel were finished from the foundation of the world. Man, that is an absolutely amazing statement. That the works of the gospel were finished before the foundation of the world. I think it's time to go home. Y'all figure that one out and let me know what you come up with next week. But you know us, we're going to try to figure this thing out ourselves. Well, first of all, why didn't the Jews enter the rest of God? Because they refused to hear the gospel. Now, how could the gospel had been preached, how could the gospel be preached to them 1,500 years before Jesus died on the cross. How could, how could the gospel be preached to them? Well, you get a hint in, in that last part of verse 3. Because the works were finished, the works of the gospel. What's the works of the gospel? The cross. The cross, the works of the gospel were finished from the foundation of the world. Before the world was made, the works of the cross we're finished. How can that be? Well, first of all, 
I think you can look at it two ways. First of all, prophetically. God is omniscient. That means God sees the future. He knows the future. He could see the cross happening before the foundation of the world. That was the plan laid before the foundation of the world. Let me ask you something. How many plans does God implement that he doesn't finish? How many? Give me a number. Zero. Zero. If he planned for Jesus to die for our sins before the foundation of the world, he knew Jesus was going to die for our sins before the foundation of the world. You know, that's why when I hear a verse like, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the end, man, I jump all over that. Because that means he's going to, he, he planned to finish a work in me before the foundation of the world. He chose me in him before the foundation of the world to finish the work. So can I rest in that? You better believe I can rest in that. So in his omniscience, he knew before the foundation of the world, and so it, that Christ was going to die on the cross, so it was as if it were done already. Now I'm going to try to blow your mind a little bit. Second reason, a second way to look at this is eternally. How much, what kind of clocks do they have in heaven? Zero. Now there is a verse in Revelation that speaks of, a, of a silence in heaven for a half hour. I, I think that's in relation to earth. But everything in heaven is what? Eternal. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in, 30, in 0 A.D., or 4 A.D., they say, and then went, when he died on a cross in 33 A.D., when he died on the cross in our time, 33 A.D., he went back to heaven. He ascended back to heaven where there is no time. So in heaven, he had always died on the cross for us. That makes sense? It really, it really doesn't, does it? You got that figured out? Well, you, we don't understand that because in our minds, we can't think beyond time. But time is a creation. Just like you and I are creations, time is a creation. And in heaven, there is no time. Everything is eternal. That's why you see Jesus coming back and forth on the pages of the Bible. Way back in the Old Testament, you know who it is Moses sees in the burning bush? It's the great I am, but he has a physical body. There's only one God who has a physical body, and who is that? Jesus Christ. He sees the angel of the Lord. And so, Jesus has, in heaven has always died for your sins. And so it was the work finished before the foundation of the world. Now, here's the next question, of this, going back to that first amazing statement, that startling statement there. How did the Jews hear the gospel? How did they hear the gospel? Several ways. First of all, they, had, they were given the law. You know, every man has a conscience. I don't care who you are, you have a conscience. And, but what do we do? We sear that conscience. We don't, we, 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 we don't listen to it. But you know what God did to, to overcome that? He gave us the law. That's why nobody wants the law posted in schools. They don't want it in, in, in any public place. They don't want to see the law because they suppress the truth so that they can live evil. Men love darkness more than they love light. And the law is light and men don't want that light. But the Jews were given the law and they were forced to read the law. 
And when they saw the law, what did they, what, if you see the law, what do you realize when you see the law? What's the first thing you realize? Man, they said all these things we can do, but that was a big lie. They found out real quick they couldn't do all these things. No, you cannot keep the law. And the soul that sinneth shall die. The wages of sin is death. People who don't keep the law realize that they've offended a holy God. And so the law is a tutor that brings you to Christ. Well, they, they were the first ones who had the law. It should have brought them to Jesus Christ. And they were given the second thing that they were given that taught them the gospel was the sacrificial system. You know, if we run to the sacrificial system today, if we run to the sacrificial system, I mean, what's that do? That, every time you sin, you had to kill an animal. Death is the only thing that can bring back. It takes blood. Life is in the blood. And that death was the only thing that could pay for our sin. And we have the law, and we know that we sin, and so we, we have to kill an animal in order to pay for that sin. Well, let me tell you, I don't know about you, but if I had to get up and kill an animal every time I sin, there wouldn't be any animals left in the world. That's why, that's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4, he says, the, the, there, the blood of bulls and coats cannot take away sin. There's not enough blood there to do it. You'd be killing animals. If you were honest, you'd be, man, you'd be slaughtering animals everywhere you went. And so they realized, if a guy, person was honest with themselves and realized what a sinner they were and how far they fell short of the glory of God, then, then they would have known they needed something else. And they were given that something else through prophecy. Because Moses prophesied of the coming Messiah. They knew there was a Messiah that was to come. They were told that. I'll tell you what's really interesting. You know who was with them on that whole trek through the wilderness? None other than Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Go with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, second book of the Bible. Hold your finger there in Hebrews. We'll be coming back to it. Exodus, oh, you're already there. Quick, Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. It says, and the angel of God, the, the, definite article. Whenever you see the definite article there, it's not an, just an angel of God. It's the angel of God. Went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. He was with them the whole way. And the pillar of cloud went, the Shekinah glory. They had that Shekinah glory with them. Wherever they went and stood before went before them and stood behind them. Now let's go back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago. If Jesus goes back into eternity, since he dies on the cross, he goes back to eternity, but he can come back into time anytime he wants. If he came back into time during the Exodus to lead them through the wilderness, I have to wonder, did he have the scars on his hand and the scars on his feet? I believe he did. I believe he did. And I believe if they had really wanted to know, they could have asked, where'd you get those scars? And he would have said, I got those dying for you.
I think maybe Moses did ask. Because Moses had a knowledge about Jesus Christ that, that few had. Abraham had that knowledge. I think Abraham asked. I think maybe Caleb and Joshua asked. But you know what? The rest of those two million people, they could care less about those scars. And so they didn't ask. They didn't know. They didn't want to know. And even though the gospel was right there being preached to them, they perished in the wilderness. I'll tell you the last reason, that the last way they were preached the gospel. They were given a picture of grace through all sorts of actions that God took while they were in the wilderness. I mean, they screamed at God and, and, and called God a liar and, and said they were, wished they had never left Egypt because they got a little bit hungry, and what did he give them? Did he give them what they deserved? What did they deserve? They deserved to be destroyed right there on the spot. But he didn't give them what they deserved. He gave them manna from heaven. And they cried out because they were thirsty, and they, they, they basically cursed God because they were thirsty. And what did God do? He didn't kill them. He gave them water from a rock. And they murmured and complained the whole way until God was finally fed up with it. And you know what he did? He sent them snakes. I can't think of anything worse than that. Poisonous snakes. Could you imagine poisonous snakes all in this room right now? It would wake everybody up good. I mean, poisonous snakes running all through the room. I mean, they had it all through their camp, and they were all getting bitten. And they came to Moses, oh, Moses, do something. I mean, we'll never murmur or complain against God again if you'll just get rid of these snakes. Yeah, right. And what did the Lord do? He said, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And those who look upon that pole, they'll be saved. What was he giving them there? The gospel. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, at the judgment day, there's going to be a lot of people say, I never heard the gospel. Oh, friends, you've heard the gospel. The air you breathe is the gospel. The life you live is the gospel. You see grace upon grace in your life. I don't care where you're at. We all hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we suppress that truth and we don't come to the light we have so we get no more light. You want to you live in a jungle and live like a heathen and a savage? God will let you. But if you want to come to the light, you want to look up at that sun and that moon and say there's got to be a God, God will come find you. I believe that with all my heart. And so back to Hebrews in chapter 4 and 5, he says, I mean, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, he says, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. Now he's going to turn and he's going to use the example of the Sabbath rest. Of your rest. It's like the Sabbath rest. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in, a, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from what? How many of his works? All his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter. There's that warning again. That's the, the third time we get that warning. They shall not enter my rest. If you go over to Genesis chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but after the six days of creation, you remember the Lord looked at the creation and he said it is good, it's very good. 
And on the seventh day, because it was very good, he rested, and we call that the Sabbath rest. And he gave that Sabbath rest to the Jews as a picture of resting in him and resting from all our works. He even rested from the work of salvation. You know, in God's mind, when he created the heavens and the earth, look back at verse number three, those works were done before the foundation of the world. So he knew all the chaos that we were going to be in in the 21st century. He's not surprised by any of this. He knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. He knew the history of mankind before it even happened. But you know what? He also knew that Jesus was going to die on a cross and that he was going to make a way for salvation to those who will rest in him. Micros. How many of you are part of the micros? Man, I am. You better be. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. Man, just think about this logically. When you try to add something to what he's done, you know, there's people who say you got to keep your salvation. You got to keep earning that salvation. You got to stay. If you don't hang on to that peg we talked about, if you don't hang on to that all the way, you're not going to make it. Let me ask you a question. When God created, when he took the Jews, let me, let me take it forward. When he took the Jews out of Egypt and headed them towards the promised land, how many of their sins had been paid for at that point? Every single one of them in God's mind because the work had been done before the foundation of the world. Well, you don't want to believe that because you, your mind can't grasp that. Let me take you to you, to our time. Let me ask you something. When Jesus died on that cross in 33 AD, when he died on that cross, how many of your sins were still, how many of your sins were, were still future? When he died on that cross, how many of your sins still had not taken place? All of them. All of them. He died for all of your sins. We, kinda, we, we think somehow that he died for our past sins, and then we have to do something with these future sins and these present sins. No, back at the cross, when he was dying for my sins, he was dying for all my future sins. Every single one of them were taken care of on that cross, and I've got to rest in that. And if I don't rest in that, then that's where I head off into some religion, and I try to add my works to his work. And listen to the warning. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Verse number five, they shall not enter my rest. If you're adding anything to the work of Jesus Christ, you will never enter his rest. Never. And you will die in a spiritual wilderness and your bones will be scattered with the rest of the lost people of this world. Since there therefore, in verse number six he says, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not cease because of disobedience. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Since there remains a rest, you can jump down to the last part of seven. Since there remains a rest, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart to this cry that he's given you that you're to rest totally in me. Because there still remains a rest. I mean... There remained a rest, there remained a rest in, in uh, the Jews' day. 
I mean, the Jews, the Jews didn't enter into that rest because of their disobedience, because, because of their unbelief. But it wasn't just the fact they didn't enter the promised land. The biggest problem that they had wasn't that they didn't enter the promised land. The biggest problem that they had was that they didn't hear the gospel and they didn't receive the gospel. And that was the rest God was trying to get them to. Yeah, he was getting them into rest in the promised land. But you know what? I read their history while they were in the promised land. They didn't have much rest, did they? The real rest comes when? When you really fully trust God. When you truly give your life to God, when you truly trust Him for your salvation and your sanctification and your glorification. And He says that rest still remains. It still remains. I mean, it, it, they didn't rest because they didn't hear the gospel. Well, listen, listen, the gospel's been given a much given in a much clearer way to me and you than it was given to them. Christ in you, your hope of glory, that's the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. And it's been preached loudly and clearly, but people don't hear it. They want to add something to it. And I know I'm preaching to the choir today, but I know there's some people, I know there's some people even in here who want to add something to the work of Jesus Christ, and you can't add anything to it. In verse number 7, he says, again, he designates a certain day, saying, today. Now, David, that's from the Psalms. David was speaking, was he speaking during the Exodus? No. He was speaking, you know, 500 years later. Uh, the author of Hebrews was speaking 1,500 years later. I'm speaking to you 3,500 years later after the Exodus. But it's still today. Today, you know, today is your day of salvation. Again, he says today after such a long time, you know, even 500 years after the Exodus, as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's that warning again. Then he says something that's, you know, a little bit difficult to interpret in verses 8 and 9. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. Now, I think that, Translation is off a little bit. If you have the King James, what do you have? Anybody got the King James? For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not have afterward spoken of another day. And I think this is twofold here because the name Jesus is in, in Greek is Jesus, just like the name Jesus is Jesus. Uh, the name Joshua is Jesus. So I think it's twofold here. For if Jesus through Joshua had given them rest, then Jesus would not afterward have spoken of another day. Jesus spoke of another time of rest, didn't he? What rest did he speak of? Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our rest. He's our Sabbath. And then he says in verse number 9, there remains, therefore, a rest. Now, that is the Greek word sabbaton, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Shabbat, which we transliterate into English Sabbath. I wish it said Sabbath there. That's a different word for rest than the rest of the words for rest we looked at in chapter 4. He says, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath for the people of God. You know, in the law, it says you either keep the Sabbath or you die. And that was a picture, a shadow 
of the real Sabbath, the Sabbath rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what, the, that law is still in effect. You either rest in Jesus or at some point God will swear in his wrath that you will not enter his rest. That's in effect today. There is only one way to enter heaven. There is one, only one way to enter into a relationship with God. And that is through Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. And if you rest in anything else, you know, I hear people, I hear people that are into, into certain things that, that add to that cross, and it scares me on their behalf. Because if you add something, you're not, and you're not totally resting in Christ, eventually your heart's going to harden, and you're not going to really enter into a relationship with Christ, and you're going to perish in the wilderness just like the Israelites did. Because few there be that find it. The path is narrow. How narrow? It is one thing, one speck in eternity. It is Jesus Christ himself. That is the only way to heaven. One pinpoint in eternity, I should say. Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, whether you were looking forward to it as the, as, as the Israelites did or looking back to it as we do, it's still that work on the cross that saves us totally. And we're to rest totally in that. Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. And it's only for the people of God. Hey, you enter the rest, you're a people of God. You don't enter the rest, you're not one of God's people. You're actually a person of God. My wife will correct me afterwards. But anyway, for he who has entered his rest has himself, look at this. He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You know what? If I were God, and I look forward to the 21st century, and I was about to create the earth, and I look forward into the 21st century, and I saw the mess this world is in, I would say, forget it. I might create Pluto and Mars, but I'm not going to create that earth. Because look at that mess. But you know what? From the very beginning, God looked forward. He knew about the 21st century. He knew the mess we were going to be in. And when he created the world, he looked forward. He looked forward to what Jesus Christ was going to do on that cross. And he ceased from his works. He was done. He knew that Christ would cry out from that cross, it is finished. He knew that the work would be done. And so he created the earth and he created Adam and Eve, even though he knew the mess that we were all going to get into. And if he rested in that and created the world and he created us, who are we to rest in anything else. Now it says that God ceased from his works. Does that mean that God doesn't work anymore? Oh, God still works. Thank goodness he still works. Because he's still working in me and I know he's still working in you. John in 
Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 17, he said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. He's always been working. He, he, you know, the author of Hebrews tells us that he lives, ever lives to do intercession on our behalf. You know, he's always working to pray on your behalf. Thank goodness he's praying for you and me. Thank goodness for that. He rules the world from his throne. He's making his enemies his footstool. He's, he's working. He's building a new Jerusalem. I mean, he's working in me. He who begin a good work in me will complete it to the end. He's still working. But listen real carefully what I'm about to say. As far as your salvation goes, as far as your sanctification goes, as far as your glorification goes, the work is fully done. Done. Do you know how he sees you right now in heaven? He sees you glorified. He sees you when you're up there later on. He sees that now. Because when you die, you're going to go into eternity where there is no time, where he sees now. So when you're, he sees your struggles. He knows how hard your life is. He knows what you're going through, but he knows you're going to make it. He knows that you're going to be glorified. Because he sees you glorified. When you go over to John chapter 4, you see the picture of the church. Uh, I've said this before, this picture of the church out before the throne of God. If you were to take a snapshot of that and get that sent back from heaven, you could look for your face down there. And if you don't see your face, you're in trouble. <laughs> what I would do then, I'd ask for a snapshot of the great white throne judgment seat. You see if my face is in there. Because you're in real trouble if your face is there. But he's, you're there. You're there. You've made it. You're not going to lose it. You've made it. If you're in Christ, you've already made it. You're glorified forever. You can't lose that. If you lose it, you never had it. You pictures at the great white throne judgment seat. And there's only one way to get it. Quit. Work now. You know, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they all shouted, save us now, Lord, save us now. Nothing but hot air. They didn't even realize what they were saying. This Palm Sunday, I say, save us now, save us now. And God's shown us that he has saved us. He has perfected us forever in Jesus Christ. Can't get any better than that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the truth that you show us through your word and this admonition to just rest totally in you. Lord, that carries over to so much of our lives if we'd just learn to do that. If we would rest in the fact that we're already there, in your eyes. We're already glorified. You've done it all. We haven't done any of it. And Lord, we're going to live forever with you and nothing can take that away. No one can snatch you out of your hands. Snatch us out of your hands. No one, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for the assurance we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us all to rest totally in him. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.